If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 18. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. If you would, read along with me. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs, one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Let's pray. There Father... Lord, God, I pray for this morning, Lord, I feel the heaviness of this sermon. I feel the heaviness of this topic, especially in the context that we live in right now, in the culture that we live in, in Western civilization, with this law that has been recently passed in Canada, Lord. God, I pray that you're with us, Lord. I pray for those families, Lord, that are affected by this topic, by homosexuality, Lord. And I know there are many parents, Lord, that are listening right now that have children, God, that they love, that are in a homosexual relationship, Lord. God, I pray that this morning that there's clarity, Lord, that we understand that true love, Lord, always, always proclaims truth. Lord, and I pray, Lord, that this message is taken that way. That we stand on the truth and nothing else, even if that offends. Lord, we stand on the truth because you have called us to, Lord, because it's truth. So be with us this morning, Lord, as we go over this topic, Lord. I just pray that you're with me, that I speak nothing that, that doesn't come from your word. In your son's name, amen. As Ross uh, mentioned, uh, we have a Kind of a special sermon this morning. Special might not be the right word to use, but um, it's a certain topic that we're going to be covering. A, a few weeks ago, there was a letter sent to Pastor John MacArthur. Um, we are pretty close with the ministry there in uh, um, Grace Community where MacArthur uh, preaches, Master's College, Master's Seminary. Um, this letter was written from a pastor from Canada. Uh, John, the pastor John ended up sending this out to a bunch of like-minded churches. And then instead of trying to explain everything that's going on, I thought it would be easier just to read this letter. Again, this is a letter from a pastor from Canada sent to uh, John MacArthur. So let me just read the letter. It says this, Pastor John, thank you so much for your willingness not only to shine a light on the situation here in Canada, but also your partnership in calling other men to preach on biblical sexuality on January 16th, in unity and solidarity with ministers here in Canada. 
I and we are truly grateful for your ministry and service. Bill C-4 passed through the House and the Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the conservative party. It received royal assent on December 8th, which was last week, which means it will come into law after, I mean, December 8th. It will come into law after January 8th, 2022. That means last week it came into law. The bill will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It will be criminalized, uh, among other things, causing other people to undergo uh, conversion therapy or promoting or advertising conversion therapy. Now, let me just stop in this letter because it doesn't explain this. Uh, If you talk to to people on the other side of beliefs here, you'll find out very quickly that conversion therapy has been used in the history of uh, Western civilization in really horrific ways. And so they use that argument to, to continue with this law that they're about, that they've passed in Canada. So I think we need to understand that there, there has been some horrible uses of conversion therapy, what has been labeled conversion therapy, but let me keep reading this letter. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that heterosexual or sexuality, heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, cisgender just means your gender lines up with your biological sex. So cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that confirms that the sex assigned to a person at birth um, are to be preferred over. Uh, other sexual orientations, gender identities, or gender expressions is a myth. According to Canada law, as of January 8, 2022, the belief that God's design for marriage and sexuality will be now seen as a, a myth. The bill defines conversion therapy as a practice, treatment, and this is where we need to pay attention again, uh, the definition of what they call conversion therapy. Okay, the bill defines conversion therapy as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, meaning someone's gender, again, matches with their biological sex, change a person's gender expression so that it confirms to the sex assigned to that person at birth, repress or... um, Reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress a person's non-cisgender identity or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not confirm to the sex assigned to that person at birth. In other words, by this definition I just read in the law in Canada, normal biblical discipleship is now illegal. The definition intentionally is broad, and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality, transgenderism, or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual or, homosexual or transgender actions and lifestyle. This means, as of January 8, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. This is what the bill says. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy 
including by providing conversion therapy to the, the other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, uh, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy by the definition they gave is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. In other words, on January 16th, or this happened last week, January uh, 8th. On January 16th, which is today, 2022, faithful men across this country, that's Canada, and many in the United States as well, will be preaching on God's design for marriage and a biblical ethic of sexuality. We will be doing so legally, declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church, and that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit. We are honored that our American brothers will be joining us in this. All this to say today, there are a number of pastors that are going to be preaching on the topic of biblical sexuality to stand with our brothers in Canada who, as of today, are doing so illegally, risking jail time. I want you to think about that for a second. The sermon I'm about to preach this morning is illegal in Canada. So today's topic is on biblical sexuality, and I have three points that I like to uh, go over. The first is the foundation to biblical sexuality, the corruption of biblical sexuality, and then finally, the conclusion or a conclusion. Let's start with the foundation of biblical sexuality. If you would turn to Genesis 1, verse 1. Again, this is the foundation. It's the beginning. It's the foundation of so much. I'm going to give this, this morning in this first point six reasons why Genesis 1 and 2 establishes God's design role for marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. I'm going to do this quickly. This is just the first point, and I'm going to have six reasons. Uh, there's more than six reasons, and I could go into each one of these reasons in-depthly, but for the purpose of today, we're going to go through them very quickly. The first reason is this. We see a complementarian nature in creation itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but look at Genesis 1.1. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? That's a pairing. Heavens and earth. They're not the same. They're not interchangeable. But they complement each other. Look at verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Again, a pairing. We have light, darkness. We have day, night. They're not the same. Right? They're not interchangeable. But instead, they complement each other. Look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, or land. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
Again, we have land and seas pairing. They're different, not interchangeable, but complement each other. And this just keeps going. In verses 16 and 18, we have the sun and the moon. If you just look at Genesis 1 as a whole, you have plants and you have animals. But then you get to Genesis 2, chapter 18, the creation of man, the pinnacle of God's creation. And there's no pairing, there's no companion, there's no complement. And listen to what God says about this. It is not good that man should be alone. Therefore, he says, I will make a helper fit for him. For you have man and woman, a pairing, a couple, right? Not the same, that's important. Not the same, not interchangeable, but complement each other just like the rest of creation. The second reason Genesis 1 and 2 establishes God's design for marriage as one man and one woman is by the fact that the woman was created from man. Look at Genesis 2, verse 22. It says this, And the rib that the Lord God taken, take, taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said... This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has or she was taken out of man. Unlike any of the other living creatures, Eve was not made from the dust. Even Adam was made from the dust, the ground. Eve was not. She was made from man's own flesh, a rib. Indicating two things. She is like man. She was made from man. She is like man, made from his flesh. There's a sameness there, yet there's also a difference. She's different than man. I mean, think about it. Adam delights in Eve because she was not another animal. Right? Animals were too different, not the same kind. But at the same time, she was not another man. She's not the same as Adam. What made the woman unique was that she was both like Adam, human, yet opposite of Adam, woman. She was exactly what Adam needed, a suitable helper, equal, but at the same exact time, opposite. She perfectly complemented Adam. Listen, she even complemented Adam physically. The third point... The nature of the one flesh sexual union presupposes two persons of the opposite sex, man and woman. It's just amazing how God has designed the sexual union. The man and the woman just fit together. They complement each other, not just emotionally, not just spiritually, not just in their roles, but physically. It's beautiful, especially when you consider how a woman was made from Adam's own flesh. Meaning, the sexual union is more than just a union. It's a reunion. Adam was one flesh before Eve was created. God took a rib from him, therefore he becomes one flesh again when he's unified with her in sex and intimacy. It's beautiful. Again, look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a reunion of Adam's own flesh. 
Fourth reason Genesis 1 and 2 establishes God's design role for marriage as one man and one woman is that only two persons from the opposite sex can fulfill the procreative purpose of marriage. One of the reasons it was not good that man should be alone is because by himself he could not fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, within one generation, man would have died off. Turn to Genesis, back now to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says this in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, let me be clear Procreation is not the only purpose of marriage. It's not the only purpose of marriage. If you are childless, you haven't had children yet, or you can't have children biologically, it's not the only purpose for marriage. But at the same time, it's one of the main purposes of marriage. Listen to Malachi 2.15. Did he, that's God, did he not make them one, with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. This command, be fruitful and multiply again, impossible without the woman. The animals were too different, not the same kind. Another man is too similar. Only the woman could fulfill this role. Again, she perfectly complemented man. Fifth reason Genesis establishes God's design for marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman is in the fact that we were made in the image of God to image God. Marriage is meant to image the unity and diversity we see in the Trinity. Unity, one God. Diversity, three persons. We talked about this last week. Marriage, unity, one flesh. Diversity, male and female. Completely equal in value and worth. But different in roles. Different in responsibilities. Again, look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, plural, that's the Trinity, let us make man in our plural, right? Image after our plural likeness. There's a point that, that Moses is making here as the author that God is making by saying this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created in the image of God. He created him singular unity, male and female. He created them plural diversity, unity and diversity, one flesh, unity, him, male and female, them diversity. 
Marriage, in fact, the family as a whole, reflects the Trinity. Finally, the sixth reason why Genesis establishes God's design for marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman is that it reflects the redemptive historical significance of marriage. This is super important, probably the most important point. Marriage is not about our happiness. Marriage is about glorifying God. And God created marriage because of something prior to marriage. Christ's love for the church. That was from eternity past. We get to Genesis 1 and God creates marriage to reflect what has already been established. Christ's love for the church. That comes first. That's foundational, not marriage. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul makes this point very clear in this passage, which is very ironic in a sense, or not ironic, a better word is poetic. Very poetic in a sense, because he's talking about a very practical thing. Second half of Ephesians is practical living, how to live out the deep theology. But right in the middle of this practical living, how to, how to interact as husband and wife, he weaves in some of the deepest theology we see in all of Scripture. The foundation to, to marriage. Just listen, you'll hear it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Very practical. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as... Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also as wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There's a deeper meaning to marriage than just your happiness. There's a deeper meaning to your marriage than procreation. And the good husband and wife, there, there, there is a reflection of what the whole Bible is all about, Christ's love for the church in your marriage. This is why marriage is so important. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now think of Genesis. This is getting weaved in here too. Right? One body, one flesh. Eve came from Adam's own rib, from his own flesh, his body. She was made from his body, his own flesh. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now listen to verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is that? Genesis chapter 2. And then 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
that should be the foundation of your marriage. This marriage union reflects the union between Christ and the church. In other words, Christ and the church are different. They are not interchangeable. Yet, at the same time, they belong to each other. The church was made for Christ. In fact, the church is Christ's own body here on earth. It's not the same. And we need to distort marriage. It's not just homosexuality, divorce, adultery. In fact, just not loving the, your wives and wives not submitting the way you're supposed to distorts this, this image of Christ in the church that marriage was meant for. So there are at least six reasons why Genesis 1 and 2 establishes God's design for marriage as a lifelong relationship and covenant between one man and one woman. The foundation of marriage is one man and one woman, lifelong relationship, covenant. Sex should be reserved for this relationship only and this relationship alone. You know what? We shouldn't call anything else marriage. Two men is not marriage. Two women is not marriage. And it's not going to stop there. It'll go beyond just that. As we will see in the second point this morning, the corruption. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. I've done a whole sermon on this portion of Scripture recently. You can go back and listen to it if you want. Today, I just kind of want to read through the passage more than anything. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For how beautiful the creation narrative is, because of sin in Genesis 3, we live in a fallen world. A world where man has rebelled against God, against God's law, against God's revelation, against creative order itself, even God's gift of companionship. In it's a world where man takes God's revelation and what, what Ross said this morning and suppresses it, takes truth and suppresses it because man does not like the truth. Romans 1 verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Right? It's obvious, it's plain. Because God has shown it to them. For his visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Again, creation reveals truth. And that truth is plain and obvious. Therefore, man is without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged. This is a super important word. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they exchanged God for something else. They said in their actions, God, I don't want you. And ever since man has been born into that same rebellion, we don't want God, we don't want his laws, we don't want his rules, we don't want his truths. We rebel, we're born into that. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, look at verse 24, therefore God gave them up. This is our culture. We are living this. This is Western civilization. Our culture as a whole has said, God, we don't want you. We don't want your rules. We don't want your laws. We don't want your definitions. Therefore, God's response, God's judgment, his wrath in this passage is just this. Him saying, okay, you can have what you want. Verse 24, listen. Therefore, God gave them up. And the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is referring to sexual sins. Again, you can listen to the sermon to see the exposition of why this is referring to sexual sins. In other words, one of the ways you know a whole culture is under the judgment of God, that God is letting them go, which is God's wrath, one of God's wrath, is that you have sexual madness in a culture, sexual revolution which we saw in the 60s, 70s, continue to this day because God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And this happens because, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. In other words, they suppress God's truth. They don't reserve sex for marriage they, re, they repress that truth, the law, because they don't like it. But that's, the only, but that's the only the first step of God's judgment in this passage. There's a second step. In fact, there's three steps, and they're downward steps. It's a downward spiral. And God lets a whole culture or people go. A second step is homosexual madness. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. That's the second time we see that phrase. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The second sign of God's judgment on a culture is homosexual revolution. Why? Why a homosexual revolution or madness? Why is that a clear sign of God's judgment? 
What's the difference between just sexual madness, verse 24, and homosexual madness? I mean, it's something we have to ask in our culture today because most people in our culture see not much of a difference. There's one word that separates them in this passage, and that's the word natural. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Fornication and adultery, which are in view in verse 24, are not unnatural sins, for they are not against nature. Of course, there are true sins, for they break the moral law of God. They result in impurity and in the degrading of one's body, as Paul says. But they are not unnatural. They are accomplished by using one's body in a natural way. Not so with homosexuality. Homosexuality is unnatural. And it is accomplished by using one's body in an unnatural way. That is against nature. In the first case, we may well need the Bible to tell us that fornication is wrong. But in the case of homosexuality, we do not even need special revelation. A look at one's own sexual body parts should convince anyone that the practice of this kind was not normal. When a culture has a sexual revelation, in other words, like like we did in the 60s, man is rebelling against God. He's rebelling against God's moral law, and that was very clear in the 60s and 70s. His revealed word. In other words, he exchanges the truth about God for a lie. In a homosexual revolution, what we just lived through in the past five to ten years, man rebels against nature itself. He exchanges natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Man becomes mad at God, in other words, for making him the way he was made. It's the potter being mad at the person that made him, the pot maker. Listen, Romans 1 is a downward spiral, and it ends in pure evil and insanity. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is the third step downward, God gave them up. Third time we see that phrase, right? Third time God gives a culture up. God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, the Greek word for debased means tested and found worthless. In other words, man's thinking just becomes worthless. becomes insane. It's madness. Up becomes down. Down becomes up. Right becomes wrong. Wrong becomes right. We call the profane beautiful. We call the beautiful profane. And listen, evil becomes good and is celebrated. And good becomes becomes evil and is prosecuted, is punished. Again, look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covenantness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, uh, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's not meant to be a... uh, it's meant to be a sample of all types of sins that a, a culture falls into. Again, this is our culture. This is where we're at. It's God's judgment on Western civilization as a whole. Then look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but listen to this, but give approval to those who practice them. This is America. This is our culture. This is Western civilization to the point that now you get thrown in jail in Canada for teaching Genesis 1 and 2. That marriage is between one man and one woman is a, is a crime now in Canada. To proclaim that, to teach that, to counsel that, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In our culture, we consider evil to be good. We teach evil. We consider evil a natural biblical sexual ethic. In other words, right is wrong, wrong is right. Evil is good, it is celebrated. Good is evil. Righteousness is is punished. This brings me to my third and final point this morning, the conclusion. And here's really where we take a stand as a church, as a pastor. And I want to be very clear what the Bible teaches this morning. If you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. We've seen the foundation of biblical sexuality. We've seen the corruption of biblical sexuality. And here's the conclusion. Again, the point that I want to make very clear this morning, why this is such a big deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. That just simply implies, do not be deceived, that it's possible to be deceived. This is a warning by Paul, do not be deceived. It implies that you can be deceived. In other words, it's possible to think that you will inherit the kingdom of God. It's possible to think that that you are a member of God's family. That's what an inheritance is. It's possible to think that you are a Christian, in other words, and not truly be saved. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me be clear, Paul is not saying that you can lose your salvation for a particular sin or a group of sins or any of these sins that have been 
mentioned. The Bible is clear. Even after salvation, we will continue to struggle with the flesh, with sin. It will be a battle. We will struggle with temptations. And at points, we will fail and we will fall into sin. What Paul is saying is that those who are characterized by these sins, by people who refuse to confess, repent, and turn from the sins, but instead justify, ignore, or are indifferent towards, or, as many do in the homosexual community, embrace it and or celebrate it. But this is clear evidence that they are not saved or, at the least, should have no assurance of salvation. Theologian Andrew Nacelli writes, the sinful people in verses 9 through 10 represent the type of people who are not citizens of the kingdom of God. Right? This list instead reflects the unsaved world, especially the Greek culture that was just as perverse, if not worse, than our culture is. It's a toss-up. <laughs> the sins that Paul talks about in this passage just represent the, the unsaved world. It doesn't represent God's kingdom. If any one of these sins characterizes one's life, such a person can have no assurance that he or she is a Christian. Yes, Christians sin, but Christians are repenting sinners. That's super important. We may fall into sin over and over and over and over and over again, but it breaks our heart. We turn from it. We repent. We confess it. We run from it. Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 implies that one must continually examine himself because he says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I could spend time on each one of these sins, and it would be beneficial for us as a church. But for our purpose today, I just want to look at the one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. The phrase and the ESV is, is really translated from two Greek words. The Greek words are, first one is malakos. Malakos just means soft or effeminate. In the context here, it's clearly referring to men who take on the role of a woman, and particularly a sexual way, because the context is very clearly, if you keep reading this passage, sexual sins more than any other. The other word is Arsenokointes, arsenokointes, it's a long word, it's a compound word. Arsen means male, coin means bed or sleep or lie down. Obviously, you get the connection here. It's a compound word when you put it together. It's those who lie down with men or those who bed men. That's a good translation. Or just simply homosexual. Now, Paul is making a connection here to Leviticus, which is very clear in the Greek. Leviticus 18.22. Again, Paul is, is an expert of the Old Testament, so he didn't do this on accident. 
Leviticus 20, 18 verse 22 says this, you shall not lie. That's kointe in Greek. And the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the New Testament, New Testament uh, Jesus and the uh, uh, or, um, apostles and New Testament believers use the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, it's, it's translated kointe, right? You shall not lay, like lie down, kointe, with a man, arsenos. As with a woman, it's an abomination. It's just very clear. Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man, arsenos, lies, kointeen. That's the word right there. It's two different words, and Paul just puts them together in 1 Corinthians. If a man lies, lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This was such an offense in the Old Testament in Israel. Death was the penalty for it. All this to say, ESV has a good translation in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, men who practice homosexuality. It's a good translation, but the implication in the Greek, I believe, goes further when you put these two words together, this compound word and the other word. It refers to blurring the line, any blurring of the line of gender and sexuality. John MacArthur writes, when you put these words together, it refers to those who exchange and corrupt normal male-female sexual roles and relations. Transvestites, sex change, homosexuality, and other gender perversions are included. God's unique creation, those created in his own image, were created male and female, Genesis 1, 27. And the Lord strictly forbids the two roles to be blurred, much less exchanged. In fact, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 tells us that a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does this thing is an abomination to the Lord your God. And the Bible's just crystal clear on this, Old and New Testament. There's revisionists that are trying to make it say something different, but you can't. You can't. Now let me just read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 one more time. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name or in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul mentions three things that separates a true Christian from a non-believer, and that's super important to understand. Jesus even says, everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. And everyone that claims to be a follower of me is truly saved. And Paul gives three things that separates a true believer from a non-believer. The first one is this. You are washed. I wish we could spend a bunch of time in this, but this is referring to regeneration. That, that, that when you are saved, you are born again. 
You have a new nature. We spent time about on this, talking about baptism. I mean, coming out of the waters of baptism signifies this, that you are a new creation. You have a new nature. The second thing he says is that you were sanctified. This is talking about a new behavior. Right? Because of our new nature, it will produce new behaviors. doesn't mean we're sinless. You can't change someone's nature and have no effects. You change the whole person's nature, if they're a new creation, they will act differently. It will produce different behaviors. You are washed, you are sanctified, and finally you are justified. This talks about a new standing. You're given a new nature, you're given new behaviors, and we have a new standing before God. Not that we become righteous within it ourselves. We are declared righteous. We have an alien righteous, a righteous that's not our own given to us. A righteous that Christ earned. But that last point is only true if the first two are true. You're not justified if you're not a new creation. You're not saved if you're not a new creation. That's why fruit is the evidence of salvation. Fruit is the evidence of a new creation which shows that a person's truly saved. When we were saved, there was a radical transformation that happened. A person becomes a new creation. And listen to 1 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you know what that means? If you're truly saved, anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, it's not that we won't sin. It's not that we become perfect. It's that we're no longer characterized by the sins of the world. The old has passed away. That's our old self. So here's the conclusion. You can't escape it from this passage and many, many, many other passages. The conclusion is this. If someone claims to be a homosexual and refuses to repent, they are not saved. And they need to be converted. They need to hear the gospel. Otherwise, they'll be spending eternity in hell. We need to feel the gravity of this. We need to feel the weight of this. Do we truly believe what Scripture says? I'm not talking about someone who struggles with homosexual tendencies. If you struggle with homosexual tendencies in this room or watching online, please come talk with us. There's grace, there's forgiveness. We're struggling with homosexual attraction. Run to God. I'm not talking about someone who struggles with homosexual tendencies or attraction. I'm talking about someone who embraces the sin of homosexuality. It's a big difference. Someone who embraces it as a norm or a good thing. They are not a Christian. No matter what they claim. Paul just makes this very clear. Do not be deceived. 
they may be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolater, nor adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is true for any one of these sins that are mentioned. You are in one of these sins and you refuse to repent. You should have no confidence in your salvation. You refuse to turn away from one of these sins. In fact, if you embrace it and celebrate it, you are not saved. You're not a follower of Christ. But for today... I'm talking about a person who is openly homosexual and refuses to repent, refuses to turn from their sins. It's a clear sign that they are not saved. Therefore, therefore, the most loving thing you can do for this person is share the gospel with them. It's to make this very clear to them. Help them understand the weight. Plead with them to turn, repent, trust in Christ. The most loving thing you can do is warn them, to warn them of the wrath that is coming, to tell them that they are in rebellion. They are rebellion against God. They're rebelling against God's design for sexuality. That they have exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The rebelling against the God is super important. Who will embrace them and forgive them if they would repent and trust in him. In other words, they need to be converted. They need to repent. They need to trust in Christ by turning away from their sins. And listen, as of last week, this conclusion, this application point, is now illegal in Canada. It is illegal in Canada to tell someone to turn from their sin of homosexuality, to repent from sin. But we as Christians can preach nothing else. We have been commanded by our Lord to preach truth. We are compelled by love. Hear me? Not the type of love that's defined by our culture now, which just means not to offend anyone. We are compelled by true love, by biblical love, to warn people, to speak truth to people. I've said this time and time again. Truth without love is harsh. We need to speak truth in love. We need to be kind. If you have children that are homosexual, if you have a neighbor that's homosexual, you have a friend that's homosexual. Speak truth in love. Be kind. Truth without love is harsh. Love without truth is not love. You hear me? Love without truth is not love. If 
fact, it's self-love if you're just trying not to offend people. Let me end by saying this. Homosexuals are not our enemy. There's going to be a temptation of our church. There's going to be a temptation within yourself, especially as persecution is right around the corner. As we see it happening in Canada, I don't know how, what the results are going to be. There's going to be a temptation to be mad at homosexuals. They're not our enemy. They are our mission field. They are blind. They are spiritually dead. And what would you expect from someone that's spiritually dead? Sin, rebellion. They're acting like their nature. They need to hear the good news. They need to hear the gospel. They are not our enemy. They're our mission field. They need to hear the good news. And we need to be loving and bold enough to proclaim it. Even if one day it means persecution, imprisonment, fines. Let me end with the words of the letter I read earlier. There is one God and one Lord over his church. And Christ alone gets to define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know this is a heavy topic, and I know there are many, many that are listening right now in this service and online, Lord, and many that are listening, that will be listening in the next service, Lord, Lord willing. God, they have children or loved ones or brothers or sisters, neighbors, friends that are openly gay and homosexual. God, this is becoming more and more of a reality as our culture goes further and further into your judgment of you just letting us go as a culture. God, I pray that even if persecution does come, Lord, through this avenue, that our hearts stay soft, knowing that it could be any one of us if you didn't change our hearts, Lord, that could be throwing those stones. That was by your grace alone that washed us, that sanctified us, that justified us. It wasn't by any type of knowledge or superior morality, Lord, on our part. Therefore, let us be gentle and kind. Let us be bold, Lord, speaking truth, Lord, in love. I pray, Lord, that we as a church that you protect us, Lord, that you give us courage, God, as we enter into this new world, Lord, this, the changing of the tide, Lord, the, this, this time, Lord, where we can see persecution on the horizon. That we would stand in boldness because we know that you are the true king and no one else is. In your son's name, amen.